This morning we are together in Genesis and chapter 49. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. This is the very word of God. It is completely without error. It is completely sufficient. And it is completely authoritative. Genesis chapter 49. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed a man. And in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you shall have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships. And his border shall be at Zidon. Issachar is a strong donkey. Crouching between the sheepfolds, he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel.
by the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask, O Lord, that you would teach us from your word that you would remind us that you are sovereign, that you would remind us that you care. Lord, we ask that you would encourage us from this word. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it seems we live in a bit of turbulent times, don't we? One week, the stock market has cratered. The next day, it climbs to new heights. We hear of trials and twists and turns, of weather patterns that are extreme. We wonder what the future holds, and perhaps we say to ourselves, if only I knew the future, then all would be okay. I would know what to expect. I would have my arms around it if I only could know what the future would bring. How many children will I have? What will they grow up to be? Who will they marry? Where will I live in the future? And you see, we wonder and we long to know the facts to come. But I wonder whether that is really the answer. Because you see, the Scripture never speaks merely of knowing the future. Even in a passage like this, which is full of prophecy. You see, the future is not some abstract, independent event that is outside of the control and power of the living God. Far better than to know the future is to know the one in whose hands the future is. To know that the future is not merely a series of random events that will come upon us, but that the future is something that has been decreed from the foundations of the world by a God who knows us intimately and loves us in Christ. You see, that is what Jacob 
is experiencing right now here in Genesis 49. He is revealing the future to his sons, but he is doing it in a way that they might know and be closer to the one who holds the future. That is, I think, part of the answer of what we see in this blessing. There are some blessings here that we would not call blessings, but they come from the hand of God. And so this morning I would like us to see three things in Jacob's prophecy. The first is the one who is knowing and declaring the future. Knowing and declaring. The second is the one who is defending and blessing. Not only knowing the future, but defending his people and blessing them. And then thirdly, we see that really the whole purpose toward which the future is going is a transformation. And we see the one who is not only the one who knows and defends, but the one who is transforming and renewing not only this world, but each and every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing and declaring, defending and blessing and transforming and renewing. Let's turn now, if we would, to the beginning of Genesis 49 and see the one who knows the future. And it's very interesting that this prophecy, this declaration of the future, begins with a looking back before it begins to look forward. There is this important summons that Jacob gives to his children. He is calling a very solemn family meeting. You know perhaps what that is like. You call family meetings to gather together to think about things that affect your whole family. But there are some occasions which are more solemn than others. Someone is ill. Or there is a great crisis. Or perhaps even a loved one has died. And you call together a family meeting and you have to say to your children, I think at times, Children, listen now. Pay attention. Now is not the time to be twirling pencils. Now is not the time to be shuffling your feet. Pay attention to me here now. And this is what Jacob does to his sons. He wants them to listen closely. And he says, I'm going to tell you about the days that are to come. That is the days in the distant future. What you have prepared for you and your descendants. Now we might ask ourselves, why would they care? It seems that so often in our day and age, people do not give any thought to next month or next year, let alone future generations. We're concerned only with the here and the now, and we don't plan for generations to come. Could you imagine if our nation undertook a building project that they knew would take a hundred years to complete? We wouldn't even start. Why should we start building something now that will benefit people long after we're dead? But you see, Jacob here now wants his sons to understand that godly living is not just about me and the here and the now. It is about the future and the legacy I leave for my descendants. Do you give thought to your distant future? As you live your life today, as you make choices... Do you wonder how that will affect your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren? Little decisions 
or not so little decisions that you make each day will have a profound effect upon them. Do you choose to unite with the church? Do you choose to be bold with your faith? Are you wise stewards of the funds that God has given to you? Do you build up relationships amongst your children? You see, all of these things have an effect as they go down through the corridors of time. And we begin here by seeing, by looking at the past, the effect that can happen upon the future. And the first thing that we see in Jacob's prophecies is that you can't hide sin. He begins here with Reuben. Now you can imagine, they're all gathered around, and he begins with a word of praise. He says, Reuben, you're my firstborn. You can imagine, in your mind's eye, as they stand around, Reuben saying, yeah, first. You are my might and my strength. You are preeminent. That's right. Dad knows who he's talking about. That's right. And then he looks at him and he says, you're as unstable as water. How could you possibly have done what you did? I mean, you can almost imagine this old, frail man summoning up all of the strength he has to say, I can't believe this. Were you nuts? What were you thinking? What was Reuben's great sin? It was seeking to take his father's place ahead of time in classic Cultural, ancient, Near Eastern ways. He followed after the ways of the world around him. And he said, I know what I'll do. I'll make sure I get the inheritance. I will go and take dad's concubine. But all it brought him was misery and pain. He was grasping with pride. And as a result, he loses everything. Who's the most famous Reubenite in the Bible? I won't wait, because we'll be here a while. You don't know one. Reuben basically is a tribe phase out of history. You only see him in the list of all of the tribes anymore. So by grasping, by going after the world's ways, and not being patient, and not following the ways of the Lord, he gets exactly what he was afraid of. He's left behind. He fades from history. And then Jacob turns to Simeon and Levi and he recounts for them the story that we saw some time ago in Genesis 34 about how their sister was assaulted and how they went and avenged themselves upon the Shechemites. And Jacob reminds them that they did not carry out justice. They carried out vengeance. And there is a difference There is a difference between justice and justice delayed and vengeance. The Bible tells us that the Lord says, vengeance is mine. It is built upon the entirety of our society, is this not? Even when things happen in courts of law that we do not agree with, we don't take the matter into our own hands. We don't nourish and nurse hatred and vengeance. This is what Simeon and Levi did. And in doing so, they became just like those that they hated. Violent, murderous, sinful. They let their passions and sin turn them into what they hated. Jacob says, you did this willfully. I want no part of this. And he says, 
he begins speaking for God as a prophet of God. And he says, you will be scattered throughout Israel. This also will come to pass. Simeon will see his territory be swallowed up by Judah. Simeon doesn't even get his own territory in the promised land. If you look at the maps and the backs of your Bibles, you will see Judah has a territory and Simeon has a territory that's shaded in the middle. They have to share it. They don't get their own. Levi, of course, gets no territory or no inheritance either. Levi is scattered throughout Israel as the priestly tribe. And in this we see just a glimpse here that even in the midst of wrath, the Lord remembers grace. You see, both of them are scattered. But Levi receives the grace of the Lord. Do you trust and count on the grace of God in your life? You know when you fall short. When you know you've blown it. When you know that you have committed the sin that you told yourself a thousand times you would leave behind. When the devil whispers in your ear that you are lost, that there is no hope for you, that God will scatter you never to be gathered again, do you know the healing power of Jesus Christ and His gospel that says to you the grace of God is sufficient to overcome any sin? Even the sin of Levi. After he looks backward, then Jacob begins to look forward. And in a series of very brief and pithy sayings, he describes each of the sons. Now, there is much that is difficult in this. Hebrew is an odd language. It is a language in which, for the most part, we only have the consonants. And we fill in the vowels by points. That is, dots around the consonants. And it is possible that the dots could be read more than one way. Is it the word than or is it the word then? We don't know. Also, the ancient way of writing was to string all of the letters together. There were no breaks for words or commas or periods. And so where do you break the word? Is this one word or is it really two words? It could be either. And so some of this makes for difficulty. And so we must understand one thing, that the Bible is true, always, all the time. But that doesn't mean we always know all the truth of the Bible all the time. There is a difference. Just because we don't know every fact that the Bible states, because we don't know every fulfillment of every prophecy, doesn't mean it's not true. Don't let skeptics or the enemies use this against you. And so we have these sayings. He begins now with Zebulun. Well, he begins with Judah, but we'll come back. He begins with Zebulun and he says, Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall be a haven for ships. And so the first thing that we look at is we look at a map and we say, well, they must be on the coast. They must have the good beach land. And we're shocked when they don't. Now, they're sort of near the sea. What does Jacob mean here? And I think what Jacob means is what actually came to happen to the tribe of Zebulun. That is, that they became a haven for ships. That is, ships are a marker of trade. 
Zebulun became wealthy. They were in a good spot. They were in an advantageous position. And so they became wealthy because of trade. Has the Lord put you in an advantageous position? I'll answer that for you. Yes. You live in the wealthiest nation in the history of the world. You are more highly educated than 99% of the world. God has given you great advantages. What will you do with them? Will you fritter them away? Will you be proud in what you have done and what you have? Thinking somehow that you are better because you were born in a rich, wealthy, powerful, free nation as opposed to in the backwater mountains of a land of slavery and poverty. Did you choose where to be born? No. The one who knows and holds the future has placed you here and he has given you great responsibility. To whom much is given, much is expected. There is a responsibility that comes with having 30 Bibles in your home and one on your hip and one in your hand. It is to speak the words of this Scripture to others, others who have not been so blessed to have, to hear, or to read. Jacob then turns to Issachar, who's Another lesson in the same fashion. He says, Issachar is a strong donkey. Now, before you think that Jacob is insulting him and Issachar is going to get all huffy, you have to understand that donkeys were actually very valuable animals at the time. Wealthy, powerful men actually rode on donkeys. They did more than simply take children around hayrides. He's a strong, powerful being. But the problem with Issachar is, is that he looks and he sees that the land is good and things are pleasant and he sits down and he says, you know what? It's pretty comfortable resting. I could sit here all day. And he does. And he becomes a slave. Because you see, he does not continue on. He takes everything for granted. And for some of you, this is your challenge. You have been given great blessings And you are sitting on your laurels. You are not memorizing the scripture more than you have. You are not praying more than you have. You are not helping more than you have. This is what we are called to do. We are called to press on, to labor on. We just recently commemorated the 504th birthday of John Calvin. Not that he's 504 years old. It's a commemoration. And when John Calvin was unable to travel the few hundred yards from his residence to the pulpit in order that he might preach, he had people carry him into the pulpit. And when he was so ill that he could not travel across the way and into the pulpit, he brought people into his bedroom that he might preach to them. And when they said to him, Hey, slow down. Take it easy. He said, What? Am I to waste a moment that the Lord has given to me? I will labor on till I am spent. Is that your attitude? Are you biding your time? Do you view time as a thing to be wasted before the Lord? Then Jacob turns to Dan and to Gad and to Asher and to Naphtali. These are the children of the concubines he begins then to turn to. 
And he reminds us that it is not the birthright or the birth order that is important. It is membership in the covenant community. Because he turns to Dan, who might well think he is going to be disinherited, that dad is going to push him off to the side because he's not one of the wives' children. And he looks right at Dan and he says, You, you will judge your people. You will be an authority. You will be a powerful tribe. You are fully a part of the covenant community. Are there times when you feel like the black sheep? Perhaps in your family? Perhaps in your extended family? Perhaps even here in this church? You think, I don't know what I have to offer. I don't know what I can do. I'll just stay on the side. You see, the Lord calls you to service and to know that you are welcome and that you are bound up into His community because He has called you to Himself. It is not where you were born or what you wear or what you have done that is important. It is your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ that makes you a part of God's family. Gad is one who will be attacked. He will be raided, but he will be victorious and will raid Gad will be attacked in a land of war. But you see, the Lord will use this to strengthen Gad. Gad will be known as mighty warriors in Israel. Do you remember the story of David's mighty men? The strongest, most powerful, best men who were around him? Do you know who are listed in preeminence of these men? The men of Gad. God was training them and building them up. And He does this through adversity. At times, He gives to us things we don't think we can handle, that we think will overwhelm us. And we wonder why He is hurting us when what He is doing is He is training us. He is preparing us to be strengthened in faith. Asher, whose name means happy one, is indeed happy. He will dwell in a land that is fertile. And this is exactly what will happen. He will dwell in the western part of Galilee. And there will be such produce and such blessing there that he will produce delicacies for a royal court that is not even in view here. But God knows it. Naphtali, whose name implies freedom, is a doe, a hind, a sure-footed animal. And that's exactly what he will be. He will be sure-footed and free. He will hold up the northern marches. Then we turn down to Benjamin. Yes, I'm skipping Joseph. And Benjamin is a wolf devouring the prey. Benjamin will be, de- will be located in a war zone. Benjamin will be a fierce tribe, a loyal tribe, a tribe that allies itself with Judah to defeat off the Lord's enemies. Benjamin will be successful. Now, there is a bit of an irony here. Do you remember who Benjamin is? He's the runt. He's the little guy. He's the one the brothers pick on and make fun of. And you see... What God says here to Benjamin through Jacob is, you will be mighty and you will be powerful. You are not restricted by your physicality or by your order of birth or by what others think of you. You will be the one who will be so victorious, you will divide the spoil with your brothers. This is from the one who knows the future. 
And then Jacob turns to Joseph. And he describes for Joseph, you can almost imagine the pain in which he says that Joseph is fruitful and powerful, but he is also under attack. Joseph is a prosperous tribe, and because of that prosperity, he comes under attack. Do you notice that the attacks are not random? They are, they are caused by bitterness and anger and envy. Because Joseph was obedient to his father, because Joseph did what he was supposed to do, his brothers hated him. Because Joseph was honorable in Potiphar's house, Potiphar's wife hated him and attacked him. Because Joseph was helpful in the prison, the butler forgot him. Do you feel like that at times? Have you said to yourself the old cliche, no good deed goes unpunished? That's the story of Joseph's life, isn't it? From the frying pan into the fire, stuck in amongst the logs. And you see, this attack keeps coming upon him because of his obedience. And we have to remember from the story of Joseph that God has not promised us a life of ease. Just because you are obedient does not mean God will bless you with health and with wealth and with success. But Joseph does have success, doesn't he? You see, his bow remained unmoved, we see in verse 24. His arms were made agile. He was able to stand up to all of his enemies. Why? Was it because he was a strong man? And like the heroes of the last few decades, he gathered himself and strapped on every weapon known to man and tied a bandana around his head and went off to victorious war. No. You see, if you are to be strong, if you are to be agile, you must not rely upon yourself. That is the way of defeat and hopelessness. You will find very quickly that you are not able that you can't beat cancer by yourself. That you can't restore your marriage by working harder. That you can't change the character of your children simply by spending more time with them. No, if you are to see success and blessing, you must find it from the same place that Joseph found it. His arms were made agile and he was strengthened by the hands of the Mighty One. The mighty one of Jacob. You see, Joseph has found his source of strength, and it is found in the living God. God is mighty and powerful. That's pretty simple, isn't it? But it needs to be declared from the rooftops today, because all of the voices in society are saying that God is weak and helpless and doesn't know things and probably doesn't exist. And you need to know that God exists and that He is powerful and mighty. More powerful than cancer. More powerful than war. More powerful than depression. More powerful than rebellion. More powerful than relationship angst. That is the God that we serve. He is a God of power. But He is also a gentle and a tender God. He is not only the mighty one, He is the shepherd. He is the one who leads the sheep to the water. He is the one who makes sure that we are not lost, but found. 
He is the rock that we can lean upon, that never moves. This is the God that we serve. And when we serve Him and know Him and love Him by faith, like Joseph, blessings come to us. You see, there are blessings that come to the one who overcomes by faith. Notice how complete the blessing is in verse 25. The blessings of heaven above and of the deep beneath and of the breasts and of the womb. Of everywhere you look, Joseph, there are blessings. And these blessings overflow. Look at verse 26. And remember who is saying this. This is Jacob who just a little bit ago said, Few and evil have been the days of my life, and they have not been as good as the days of my father's. And he looks at Joseph now and he says, The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of your parents. My blessings that I give to you, Joseph, are more than Abraham's and more than Isaac's. You see, God's blessings increase as His covenant unfolds, as He comes closer and closer to the fruition of all things. We do not live in a miserable, mean time. We must push aside the thought that the church today is lost. And if we could only have lived in the 17th century, or only have lived in the 18th century, or only have lived in the 2nd century, then we would be able to do great things for God. God knows nothing of this. His kingdom goes on. His spirit is at work right now in our midst. These blessings overflow. The third and final thing that we see briefly is that God is the one who transforms and renews. So we come back now to Judah. We had skipped him. But remember where he is in the sequence. Jacob has just let Reuben, Simeon, and Levi have it, but good. Now, have you ever had this happen in your family? You have multiple kids around, and you have to deal with discipline, and you start going down the row? Or maybe better yet, I should say, have you ever been in the row? And as he's coming down, you're thinking, oh my. Now, can you imagine? He's just really laid into Simeon and Levi and Reuben, and Judah knows he is a miserable sinner. The incident with Tamar. Remember, it was his idea to sell Joseph into slavery. Remember, he was the one that messed up and said to Dad, Dad, don't worry about it. Let us go back to Egypt. I'll take care of Benjamin. You could just imagine. He's sweating bullets. What's Dad going to say to me? And Dad says, Judah, your brother shall praise you. What? What? And now you can imagine, he's thinking through this because actually his name means praise. His mother had said, I will praise the Lord and call him Judah. And now Judah is hearing that there is hope for him, that he has been transformed, that all that he has done, all of the faith that he has placed in the Lord, all of the ways in which God has changed him are now evident to be seen. You see, first he had been a proud man that wanted to do anything he wanted to do. Bring Tamar in here. We'll burn her. We don't even need a trial. And then he had been humbled. But now he's being raised up again. And you see, that is the way of the cross. If you want to be raised up, you must be humbled. You cannot raise yourself up. 
You must be with Judah. You must be humbled and ready to know the blessings that come from the giver. And he will be given victory over his enemies and lordship over all of his brothers. Now think about it. Even Joseph. The one who gets the double portion. Judah will be mighty. But it's not just that there's a hope of transformation that has come upon him. There is a hope of renewal in this odd couplet that comes. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the people's And then this odd phrase, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice wine. He washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. What does this mean? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the staff, neither the rule, nor the leadership. Until when? Well, this translation says, until tribute comes to him. Some translations say, until Shiloh comes. The problem here is this word could mean one of about four things depending on where you divide it up and where you put the vowels. It can mean either until the sent one comes. I wonder who that could be. It could mean until the son comes. S-O-N. I wonder who that could be. It could mean until the peace giver comes. I wonder who the Prince of Peace could be. Or perhaps the best and most literal is, Shiloh can be translated, He whose it is. That is, to him to whom it belongs. When the one to whom everything belongs comes, then the consummation will come. And all will obey him. Not just the family, not just those who are around us, but everyone. You see, the hope for Judah, the hope For Israel is in the one who will come, the Messiah himself. Is that your hope? Do you wake up every morning hopeful that Messiah comes? That Jesus Christ will come and make anew this world that is so badly in need of it. And when he does, there will be great abundance. That's where this phrase comes up. Every mom here is cringing about washing clothes in wine. doesn't make any sense. Unless you say... We are so abundant and so prosperous, we won't even use water for laundry. We'll use fine wine. And this business about tying a donkey to a vine, it would mean that you'd have to have a vine that was thicker than a rope. How many of you have ever seen grapevines thicker than a rope? Do you see, what Jacob is describing here is a time of great blessing and of overflowing prosperity. And that is what good people of Christ's church, that is what is coming when he to whom it belongs comes. That is your hope. Your hope is in the renewal that will come when Jesus Christ comes and makes all things new, including you and me. This is our hope. The Messiah is the one who not only knows the future, but who decrees it. He is God himself. This is the one that we long for. We hope to see. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would remind us, O Lord, that you are indeed returning in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We ask this morning that you would give us great hope and confidence based upon what you have done and what you are doing. This we ask, O Lord of lords, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.